Well, it's uh, kind of crazy being in the Colosseum. <laughs> Good morning. Welcome to Deviz. Divisadero. God has arranged everything, and it's a, it's a blessing indeed. We've been in Joshua for a series of messages. We're in chapter 7 today. In chapter 6, the people marched around Jericho, and with all of God's design and timing, the walls fell, and the people took the city. It was the major fortress to their occupation of the land, the land that God had promised them. God strictly forbade that they take anything. The entire city of Jericho was under the ban. That is, in our modern language, it was devoted. It was devoted to God entirely. And so the people were carefully warned, do not take anything, because it all, in simple language, it all belongs to me, signed to God. In chapter 7, after this magnificent defeat of Jericho, entirely understood as God's plan and God's action, they come to the city of Ai. Ai is a smaller city. If these were football teams, you would think the next team on our schedule is an easy win. And they expected I to be an easy win. They sent up just a, a small number of their army. But in the end, their army was routed. 36 of their soldiers were killed. And the shocking thing that left them devastated was that after this incredible defeat of Jericho, they suffered an incredible defeat at the hands of a less fortified and much smaller enemy. And so, Joshua and the people fell on their faces, and they mourned as if each had lost a loved one. And it was as though there had been a death in the family of each one. And in their mourning, J Joshua cried out to God and said, you know, what's going on? I even suspect there was a bit of doubt in the soul of Joshua. And he says, what's to become of your name, O Lord? What's to become of your name? And God says to Joshua, get up. Get up. Like my mom used to say to me, quit sniveling. Quit feeling sorry for yourself. 
God said to Joshua, get up. I don't have to worry about my name. I'm defending my name. This is about my name. He said, someone has violated the ban. Someone has stolen from me. And God talks about all the people, not just one. I mean, it's like they're all in it. They're all culpable. And God says, consecrate yourselves. Not a word we hear very often. Consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow, you're going to start with tribe and then by clan and then by household. So you've got tribes, and within tribes you have clans, and within clans you have households, like voting districts. And this process goes on and on and on until they expose one man, and his name is Achan. So I'd like to read, and we're going to focus on verses 19 through 21, but let me read the very first verse. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, to see we're going from tribe, you see, to clan, to household, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And now we turn to verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel. Give praise or make confession to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Years ago, I figured it out, years ago in 1970, and by the way, in 1970, I was a drugs, rock and roll, counterculture hippie. I don't know if that means anything to you, but a buddy 
a buddy that I knew from hangouts and parties invited me to a guitar mass at the Catholic Church. Now, I imagined a car mass, uh, a guitar mass, as some kind of a mini culture kind of rock concert because I'd never been to a Catholic church. I didn't know what a mass was. I just heard the word guitar, and I thought, cool, I'll go with you. We can get stoned first. In other words, we can get loaded. We can do some drugs before we go into the Catholic church. That's what I was saying to him. And he turned on me. Wow. Are you kidding, John? Is nothing sacred to you? Forget it. And he walked away. And I was shocked. And I was ashamed. And I still am when I think about that. It still brings me shame that I was so far, so secular, that I had lost complete sight of the sacred. And it took another guy, I can't even remember his name, a guy I knew from parties and get-togethers and hangouts and trips to watch bands. It took a guy like that that I didn't even know went to church who turned on me and said, wow, is there nothing sacred to you? Who knows? Maybe all these years later, and maybe in all the in-between time, maybe he became a priest. I believe he'd be shocked to learn that I became a pastor. (laughs) Priest or pastor. It's a case of the unlikeliest people making something sacred of their lives. It's a case of turning from the secular to the sacred, even having eyes to see the sacred in a world where it increasingly is true, nothing sacred anymore. For God to be God in our lives I mean, we can have sacred space. Um, We can make this a sacred space. It's not dedicated to God. It's not devoted to God, which is the narrower definition of sacred. But we can make it sacred. But it's up to us 
And that's true of us. It's true of all, anywhere, anytime. We could be in a sacred space, a dedicated place, a place that even onlookers would consider sacred, and yet to us it may be profane in the way we think about it and treat it. There is that kind of a duality of things. We can have doctrine and believe it and invest in it, trust it. We can bring the doctrine from the pages of the Bible to life in our words, our actions, our attitudes, our outlooks. We can make it real. We can bring that stolid, dead, black and white piece of information to life and live it out. Make it real to somebody who's never been in a sacred place or doesn't know one when she or he sees it. But it's up to us. And Achan is a point in fact. He knew it was dedicated. He knew it was devoted. But when push came to shove, Achan came first. Achan was number one. It could impact everybody else. But at that moment, nothing else mattered but Achan. See, everything that's not sacred is secular. And we live in a manifestly, massly secular world. I'm not opposed to that but I'm appealing as this passage is appealing to us to be sacred in a sea of sacred, secular, to be sacred in a sea of secular. The detection of action of Achan, his violation of things devoted to God, his punishment is really repugnant. I don't know if you've read the whole chapter. I don't know if you know the rest of the story. After Achan confessed, Achan, not just Achan alone, but Achan's wife, Achan's children, Achan's cattle, Achan's little doggy, his favorite little cat, his pet bird. Everything that belonged to Achan was destroyed. That's hard to preach. That's hard to talk about. And you know why it's so hard? In part, it's hard because we are so secular. We do not understand the sacred. And it's becoming increasingly foreign to us. Increasingly distant to us. 
increasingly odd to us. As I said, the sacred narrowly defined means that which is devoted or dedicated to the service and worship of God. In general, almost anything that is worthy of great respect can be considered sacred. Or we, we apply the word sacred to something that's just very special to us. And that's another element of the sacred. It's special. It's not ordinary. It's more to the extraordinary. It's not every day. It's not easily replaceable. It's not ignored because it's so plentiful. It's not like an old broom. It's special. And the sacred discriminates, and that's really a hard thing in our world, to discriminate. Not everything is the same. That's secular. There's some things that are set aside, set apart. They're not for everyday use. They're not for common use. They're not for ordinary things. They're special. They're important. That's sacred. It discriminates. Not everyone is worthy. Not everyone can have because it involves a certain involvement to appreciate what is sacred. And there's something mysterious and inspiring about the sacred because it's bigger than you and me. It's more important than me. And that's the most important lesson of the sacred, especially when we're talking about the Lord who is the benchmark of holiness and sacred. If he's not bigger than me, if he's not more important than me, if I don't, so to speak, take my place at his feet, there can be nothing sacred to me, nothing off limits, nothing out of bounds, nothing untouchable. And those are all elements and parts of the sacred. What destroys the sacred? Just like that. What turns the sacred to the secular? Pride. Pride. Me first. That's the mantra of our day. Me. And I I understand We encourage our kids. We encourage one another. Go for it. Just do it. The sky's the limit. You can be anything. Nothing can hold you back. Watch some commercials. By the way, there's more education in commercials than some of the shows that we watch. Commercials are very telling about our culture very telling about our value system. I understand that. 
But we, along with encouraging our kids to reach for the stars and maximize their potential, we need to teach them humility. We need to teach them that there's someone and therefore some things that are sacred, that are untouchable, that are special, and they needed to be treated and understood as such. We need to make it sacred. We want it to be sacred, but if we want it to be sacred, we've got to make it sacred. Do you understand what I'm saying? We can hail it as sacred. We can point to it as sacred. We can police other people for not ob observing and valuing the sacred. But it's all a sham if we don't make it sacred. We've got to be engaged with the sacred. It's easy to secularize but it's a little more difficult to sacralize, that is, to make it sacred. In verse 21, we see how to secularize. Here's what I did, said Achan. Now, you see, the crux of this whole thing, all of chapter 7, this, this abrupt dead end, the people come to a dead end with God. God, if you read the chapter, says, in effect, you're not going to be my people. So they root out Achan. Joshua, you know, they're like in an interrogation room within the police department. The film's running, and there's Achan and Joshua, and Joshua says, Come clean, son. Tell me the truth. Before God. And Achan says, I have sinned against Almighty God. Here's what I did. And what did he do? He made what was exclusively God's exclusively Achan's. And I've seen myself do that. I'm not talking down to you. I'm talking as a fellow here. A person walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Someone who wants to become more like him. And I realize I need to make more of my life sacred. I need to make more of the things around me and in my world and the events of my life and my experiences day to day, I need to make them sacred. But here, Achan secularizes the sacred. I'll tell you what he did. And he tells us in verse 21, he looked and he looked twice. He looked a second time, and that second look sunk him. When he looked the second time, 
he says, he tells us exactly what he did. He says, uh, I coveted. And there's a third thing he did, and this is all happening, I think, almost simultaneously. He reclassified the devoted to the word spoils. You see, you hear all the time, the spoils of war, the spoils of war, the spoils of war. That's the payoff for troops. In antiquity, that's how you kept your troops happy. They went on campaign often for not only adventure, but for wealth. And so what you conquer, you keep. And Achan, when he's describing this, he doesn't call it, I looked at the devoted things and I lusted. Who would look at the sacred things and lust or covet or feel greed? No, he calls it the spoils. He's reduced it to something that belongs to a guy like him. Like, why not me? And that's how we secularize. I'm one too. I deserve this. Deserve, deserve, deserve. Why them and not me? We see ourselves as just part of the crowd. We don't, Paul calls you and me holy ones, often translated saints, the holy ones. I don't even think of myself that way. But we are. So if we are sacred to God, then for that to mean something, we've got to make it sacred. Make it sacred. Yeah, Achan, he looked a second time. He coveted. He reclassified. And by the way, Isaiah, in the fifth chapter, the 20th verse, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness and put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. But fourth, he hid it, which was his way of saying, this is all mine. It's mine exclusively. Achan, when Joshua says, this this expression, give glory to God, doesn't occur very often. I mean, it's rare. And Joshua says, give glory to God. Now, glory is one of the slipperiest words that I know in the Bible. What is the glory? But one thing we do know is that the word for glory in Hebrew is the word for heft or weight. And often, valuables, precious things, were not so much trinkets, but money was weighted. And so its value was determined by its heft. So when he says to Achan, give glory to God, I think he's saying something like value 
God above yourself. Give God some weight. Recognize who you're talking to. And that's important for us all. Do you realize that we as Christians, we who follow Jesus, we follow him who fulfills all of the aspirations of the patriarchs and prophets and peoples of the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, we see Jesus positioned in the history of God and his work and redemptive plan for the people of the entire earth. And in this plan, and in, so to speak, the very center of time, is Jesus, his birth, His ministry, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost and the birth of the Jesus people, the church, of which we are a part. This is, as described by Paul, and others across the New Testament. We are described as a new genus, a new species, a new kind. The very word that is used for a tribe or a distinctive people is used of us, a genus, a race. It's often translated race, a race of people. We are a new race in Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about eugenics. I'm talking about the fact that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And yet we identify with more that is ungodly than our God. Politics. Sports. I'm not saying we can't have opinions about those things or even wave our flags, but God has been lost in this. And I think our identity with Jesus Christ, do you realize we'll stand alone someday? We alone because of Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And yet we fight with one another. We mistreat one another. We tattle. We think poorly. And I'm not just talking in the Colosseum. I'm talking about across this nation and around this world. And in many ways, we're less like Christ than more like Christ. In fact, the world doesn't recognize us. They recognize us more by by our affiliations, our political alignments. This is a problem. It's a dead end. 
It's a dead end. Achan didn't value God. You know, it's interesting. If he would trusted God, if God had had more weight in his life and he had not looked that second time, had not coveted, had not re-evaluated, renamed what was devoted to what was Achan's and had not hid that, it wouldn't have been a dead end for him. I was asked to speak at a winter camp for college students on ethics, on morality. And so uh, it's not that I was uh, an icon of morality or ethics. I guess they, had a, they knew I could learn about it. But I spent a lot of work and effort going deeper than I'd ever gone before trying to understand ethics so I could speak about things in general and then things in specific as it relates to our walk with Christ. And I had a number of messages, but in the, day, in the week leading up to the, to the retreat, there was a news item about a, a young Christian lady who had been a, a beauty pageant winner. And she was caught shoplifting, shoplifting, lipstick, and uh, some other cosmetic. All of a sudden, her, she was not a beauty. She was an ugly. You know what I'm saying? People didn't look up to her. They looked down on her. She gave all that up because in the end, God wasn't of weight, not more important than lipstick. He could maybe trust God, call out to God when he needed him. But when he thought he could get by without him, dependent upon wealth, that he had never seen or laid his eyes upon, things that he thought more beautiful than God. He set God aside, but now he's hit this dead end. Sometimes we're living such a secular life that we don't even realize when we come to these points of decision. And what I'm saying is when we come to these points of decision, we're so secularized, we do the same things Achan does. We look a second time. We kind of relabel what the thing is. We don't see it as off limits, sacred or dedicated, devoted or holy or just not mine. We say, it's spoil. I deserve it as much as the next. I should get it too. And we take. And we hide. And I'm saying that if we're to learn something from Achan in Joshua chapter 7, we've got to make it sacred. We have to bring the sacred into our lives. We have the sacred as the divine power to live our lives, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. 
gifting us, leading us, teaching us. A true power of God. This is a gift that people, if they really believed it were true, they would say, what do I have to do to get that? You see, we've, we've relabeled these things somehow in our secularity. We don't hear it as it really is. The Spirit isn't some rabbit's foot we rub on occasion. So what do we do to sacralize in verses 19 and 20? We give glory to the Lord. We give weight, value, importance, place. What is value in your life and in mine? That's the question you have to ask, and that's the question I've been asking. How do I make sacred? You will have to do that. I wish I could do it for you. I have enough to do it for me. It's not easy. You have to think about it. You actually have to set aside a little of your attention to make it holy. You have to think about it. You have to calculate what I might do. I can give you just a couple of tips. For one, acknowledge the presence of the Lord. He's not over there. He's not in that sacred place. He is in you, the holy place. You, the sacred space. You have to make that sacred. It doesn't mean you have to drain all the joy out of it. If we realized what Christ did on the cross, we have to acknowledge when we flip God off. We have to admit that. When I don't care about what God cares and I, ca I catch myself, that calls for correction. That calls for what we in the Bible call repentance. So that has to be a part of our lives if we're going to make ourselves holy. We have to own up to the fact that we were walking in the opposite direction of Jesus. And we need to make a course correction. But then, that's it. You walk with the Lord in joy. That's what the cross has achieved. The cross, the power of the cross is not guilt. And guilt is very powerful. It is not fear, and fear is very powerful. And if guilt and fear and fault-finding and policing other people is the power of your life, it's not the cross. It's not. The cross is covenant. It's a new covenant that we celebrate in the bread and the cup. The bread, his life for ours, that we might lead a new life. And the bread is matched with the new covenant, the cup, 
in his blood. You see, if you really understood the power of the cross, you would acknowledge your sin and say, I am so human, and move on. And take his forgiveness to heart. Not so we can keep doing what we'd be doing anyway, but so that we can live the life of the Spirit without the drain and the drag of our past and our shortcomings. That's how we become more like Christ. That's how we become more sacred. And that's how the fruit of the Spirit. Listen to the fruit. Love, not hate. Love, joy, joy, joy. If the church is characterized by anything but joy, I mean, we ought to be lighthearted and smiling and rejoicing and not let the, the things of the past hold us back. To be forward-looking, to be excited about the challenges of living for Christ. And it goes on. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. Self-control's in there too. Acknowledge the presence of the Lord. Practice humility. Practice humility. And I'll tell you how you can practice humility. This is a third thing, gratitude. Be grateful. You want to be aware of God's presence? Start giving thanks. Recognize the opportunities and the possibilities in the here and now. And when you invite God in like that, you start giving thanks. It's gratitude. There is so much of our lives that we have to give thanks for. If you watch the news and those mothers with watering eyes, little children with their little teddies and giraffes and leaving dad behind to fight an ogre, an arrogant, overweening, prideful, self-righteous ogre who speaks nothing but lies. What are we worried about today? Yeah, the economy. Hey, I'd pay an extra couple of bucks at the, at the gas pump per gallon to do my part to support Ukraine. We don't know what the future holds. What's in the balance is of a such strategic nature. Life as we've enjoyed it the last 50 or more years may be changing forever. Are we prepared? Not if our faith, our trust, and our awareness of God's presence is in anything but the moment. And that's where we are most powerful. And that is how we start. We consecrate ourselves. And it all is at the cross in the bread and the cup. This bread represents the life of Jesus Christ for you and for me. We're so fortunate to be able to do it together all these years and all the years to come as long as we have breath and God keeps us in this area. That's a gift. 
But ultimately, the power of the Christian life comes down to one, you and me. One person recognizing him as Lord. That's what it takes. That's how you make sacred. You say Jesus is Lord. And he can only be Lord in one moment at a time. In the moment that you're aware, in the moment that you surrender the control of your life to the control of his gracious life through the power of the Spirit. And that's what we remember. That's the reality that we, in this moment, acknowledge. So I want to give us a moment just to prepare our hearts, and then we'll take the bread and the cup. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread. He blessed and he broke. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat. In the same way, after supper, the cup also, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. All of you drink it. I was something profane in the eyes of the Lord. All of that has changed. God takes the profane and with a willing heart, an open heart, a heart touched by his grace, not by our merit, by, by his grace, he turns the profane into the holy. 
It's a process, and I hope this isn't disappointing, but the truth is you'll never be holy enough. You'll never finish the journey, not until Christ comes. He'll finish it for us, and then the Spirit will be all in all. But along the way, we're humble because we know we're sinners saved by grace. We remember the cross. We remember Jesus who loved us so. And he gave his life for us. God bless you.